sometimes you just feel like you're being fed a party line. Uh-huh. Like restaurants are great places to work because you can work evenings and go to school in the day. So like, ha, look at that. That's so wonderful for flexibility. Sure, except for if you're front of house and you don't know when you're working in two weeks or four weeks because the schedule hasn't come out yet, you can't plan your life. Yeah. So is it flexible? Yeah, but that's not what people mean is like being able to work nights as being flexibility. It's not about that. It's about I want to make sure that in June when my cousin's getting married, I can have that day off and you can't promise me that. Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin, produced by the Capital Times. I am your host, Cap Times food editor, Lindsay Christians. The challenge of finding and keeping restaurant workers has been coming up in my reporting for the past several years. With unemployment in Dane County currently at 1.9% and robust demand in bars, cafes, fine dining spots, and brew pubs, everybody is hurting. I wrote a cover story on this issue in last week's Cap Times, so this week on the podcast, my editor Rob Thomas is joining me in the studio. We talk about why turnover matters, what diners usually don't think about, and what impacts we might see on the restaurant scene. Give a listen. Hello, welcome, Rob. Hi, Lindsay. So today you're going to interview me. The tables have turned. The tables. The hunter has become the hunted. That's a little aggressive. Sorry. Um, yeah, I'm in journalism. Yeah, that's what we right. do. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're going to talk today about the cover story that I just filed and you just edited. Yes. Some of it. Some of it. Yeah. I was yeah. out of town for – so it was fun to see the finished product because yeah. I, I saw the beginning and then I had to leave and go to Colorado and then I saw the finished project, which the product would look really good. And Thank you. Had all the pictures and everything come together and uh, uh, our illustrator, Brandon Rago's cool cover design and yeah, so it turned out really well. I liked the – so he did like a classified ad image. Yes. And so it's like newspaper on newspaper. Exactly. Kind of fun. It's sort of an, the inception of Cap Times cover stories. That's, it's, that's a movie. It's meta newspaper. Yeah, it is. Very much. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I this was a lot of fun to work on, actually. Yeah. So uh, t- t- do tell me about it because this is sort of a sort of an update to a story you did about in 2014, but also uh, a big expansion on it, I guess I'd say, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So why was now the time to revisit this? So I wanted to revisit it now just because of how often I was hearing from people about the impacts from staffing. When I wrote about it in 2014, I really wanted to focus on the expansion of Madison College's culinary program and what they were doing there. I wanted to talk about kind of some of the other things that were in the works. They they were planning food works at that time, but it didn't exist yet. Um, Some of the other programs like, you know, Just Bakery does training and there's a Pro Start program that the Wisconsin Restaurant Association is involved with. And and so I wanted to look, look at how are we addressing this kind of growing issue? What is the issue? Like, like how dire are circumstances here in Madison in terms of staffing restaurants? So, Every everything that I have is pretty anecdotal. Okay. But every restaurateur, every person in the industry that I talk to, pretty much everybody says, "Oh yeah, staffing is really hard." Everybody. It's universal. So, I started seeing things like restaurants posting that they had to close a couple of nights a week because they couldn't get enough college students to work 
you know, in the kitchen or in the front of the house. I was hearing people talk about how they had to rehire people they didn't want to work with anymore because they felt they didn't have a choice. But the level of the discussion around it had just become more and more constant because wages for people, especially in the back of the house, are artificially low. Right. Right. And so but people also as the restaurant scene was growing, people were moving around more looking for a better culture, a better pay, a better fit. So if if something doesn't work in your job and you're in a recession, you stick it out because you don't know if you'll find another one. Well, that's not a that's not a question for a lot of people in the restaurant industry now. Right. You can walk across the square and go to a different one. Yeah. Uh, the money quote in your story is something to the effect of like, uh, <laughs> do you know how to use a knife? Congratulations, you have a job. <laughs> yeah. And I've seen people on Twitter, be, you know, another walks life being like, well, I've got that to fall back on if <laughs> this doesn't work out or whatever. So like you say, it's it's high-end restaurants and, and mid-range and downtown and outlying areas. It, it, it's pervasive. Yeah, it's absolutely pervasive. And what's what's funny to me, too, is that, you know, you'll have these stories of people who seem really qualified. Lauren Montalbano was one of the people I talked to for the story, and she was saying how she does, like, what is it called? Like visioning. You kind of sit and you meditate on the person that you want to come. <laughs> <laughs> Like I am, I am going to, and it's it's like a practice. They put like, a chef you know, on their vision board. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but but she's like, you know, she was very specific and like and, and thinking about it, like, okay, I want someone really qualified and whatever. And she did. She got someone really qualified who came and worked one shift, like half a shift or something, and was like, I just can't do this. The kitchen is too small. It, it makes my head hurt. And left. And she's like, you can't make up the stuff that people will do to you, you know. So even getting qualified staff is like one thing, but getting reliable staff is uh, is another thing. And keeping them, yeah, right? and keeping yeah. them, yeah. Um, so how how easy was it to report the story if literally everybody has been talking about it nonstop? So the hard thing ended up being narrow, narrowing it down, yeah, and trying to decide, you know, who which perspectives I really wanted to highlight, and. Because literally everybody, everybody has a story. And also some people are sensitive about because they don't want to make it sound like they're struggling. Restaurants are notoriously sort of protective of this idea of like, you're not going to get health insurance and you're not going to get paid super well if you're a line cook. But the margins are so low and everyone is working so hard that there's a lot of, I think, defensiveness sometimes around that. Uh Like a lot of people are like, I wish I could pay my line cooks better. But the way that the business model is set up I, you know, it, with food costs going up and these other things that I have to take care of, like it's hard. And so that's when you start looking at like, well, how can you set up a business model at the very beginning to be factoring in things like training and having time for that and and educational opportunities for your employees and things like that. But um, it was I, I really wanted to have employee voice in there. Uh-huh. And that was something that I went seeking. And I wanted industry veterans as well as like some newbies like into the industry, like I'm just in the industry as of like a year or two ago versus I've been doing this since I was 14 and I'm 45, which is Brian Hamilton, um, who has like said he's sworn off management forever. Yeah. But I'm like, mm, have you? I, I wonder if in a year he'll be managing somewhere pretty cool. I don't can't, know. Can't quit it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, he'll probably hear that and roll his eyes. Um, but – but truly, like it was, it was just sort of trying to find those voices. And there were some people that I talked to, um, quote unquote, experts that I didn't end up including in the story at all. Huh? Because you wanted that local. I wanted the local kitchen focus, focus but also like sometimes you just feel like you're being fed a party line. Uh-huh. Like restaurants are great places to work because you can 
work evenings and go to school in the day. So like, ha, look at that. That's so wonderful for flexibility. Sure, except for if you don't know, if you're front of house and you don't know when you're working in two weeks or four weeks because the schedule hasn't come out yet, you can't plan your life. Yeah. So is it flexible? Yeah, but that's not what people mean is like being able to work nights as being flexibility. It's not about that. It's about I want to make sure that in June when my cousin's getting married, I can have that day off. And you can't promise me that. Well, and, and so that's the kind of schedule you think would be perfect for a college student. But one of the things you're finding is that fewer and fewer college students want to work at restaurants, even ones that are just off campus, it sounds like. What's going on there? I think it's a couple of things. I think that maybe in my parents' generation, you could work a part-time job um, or even like more and make some substantial money back toward the education you were currently getting. Uh-huh. That is not a thing now. If you're paying thousands of dollars in student loans, you're racking up these loans and like for this schooling that you're trying to get, then yeah, you're going to focus on that because the the few hours a week that you get at, you know, whatever sports bar on Regent Street are barely going to make a dent, right? So maybe you can work a few shifts a week, but you're not going to want to do too much more than that because I mean, long term, what's it going to get you? So your employment focus is actually getting the best job you can after you graduate and rather than making a few bucks or, while you're at school. Yeah, or internships or right. other kinds of like vocational things that are actually going to help you in your career. Yeah. I think that's part of it. I think the other is that if you're if you're the kind of college student who's going to school, whose parents are paying for your apartment and your tuition and all that stuff, then maybe you don't have to work anyway, right? Maybe you're well off enough that you don't have to have a job. So the challenge becomes restaurants want someone who's going to be there, like front of house, for example, someone who's going to be there often enough that they're going to know the menu and know the specials and know how everything kind of works and yeah. flows and is able to work with their team. Whereas if you only want to work one shift a week, you know, and you want to take off a couple of days before your next exam and all of these kinds of things, I think it can be like they don't necessarily want that person. Right. Either. Yeah. Line cooking or dishwashing, right? You're on your feet for hours. You're doing a physical job, and it doesn't pay. You know, it doesn't pay hardly yeah. anything. So, you know, I, I feel like there, there's a lot of things that kind of culturally maybe keep people from doing it. How does immigration and changing views on immigration or changing policy on immigration, especially, how has that affected the restaurant biz? That's a good question. The restaurant business is hugely reliant on immigrant labor, whether it's um, authorized or unauthorized. Uh, I talked to Karina Mendoza at the university. She was she's doing a lot of financial consulting with Latinos and with other like immigrant business like entrepreneurs. And she talked about how when you have these policies around immigration where there's like these unexpected crackdowns like there were last fall um, or, you know, just policing in general, places where people don't feel safe, they don't want to leave their house. Yeah. Um, so that becomes an issue. And I think it, it just this it has this sort of chilling effect where you see um, I was reading stories out of Chicago and other larger cities where you have restaurants having to close because people are too afraid to come to work. That happened at least one restaurant in Madison, too, right? When yeah. ice was in town. Yeah. yeah. Um, Tipsy Cow posted a, a sign on its door saying, you know, because of pressure from, you know, immigration officials, we're closing our restaurant to protect our employees. Yeah. Um, and I think that restaurants are often really hesitant to talk about that kind of thing because they don't want to be, you know, perceived as doing anything wrong, like hiring someone who's maybe not in the country legally. Um, but these these kinds of issues, they exist in the world, sort of like 
um, if you don't have reliable transportation. Right. Right. And if it's hard for you to find a bus route to your job or you don't feel safe on that bus route, whatever, like those kinds of things can have – well, then that's why they're late to work. Yeah. And if they're late to work a few times, you know, then you end up having that turnover again. Yeah. It's pretty obvious what the effect is uh, to for people who work in restaurants. But like for Joe Diner, say, meaning somebody, somebody who eats, not a, yeah. not a greasy spoon kind of diner, what is, you know, what is the impact of – I guess I would say both the staffing problem and then what's being done to correct that. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think diners are seeing it in a lot of different ways that they don't know. Okay. Right? So like when this restaurant is closed on Mondays or Tuesday nights, um, oftentimes it's because of staffing issues because they can't find enough staff. Yeah. Or if like you've (laughs) – we talked a lot about like the poke trend. So – if you want to have a sushi restaurant, you have to have someone who knows how to cut fish, right? And that's an extreme oversimplification of what sushi chefs do. But you have to have somebody who knows how to do that. If you have a poke restaurant, it's basically some of the same ingredients. Not all, but like some of the same ingredients, right? But you just have to scoop it and dump it. Yeah. So the staffing is a lot easier for a place like that. You'll see concepts coming up where like Miko Poke shares a, a kitchen with Everly, which means that prep can be shared. Okay. Right. So that's a staff kind of thing too. Um, you'll see. I I have noticed it um, in that my servers most of the time can't answer any of my questions at all. Like, I prefer that they go back to the kitchen and ask, like, "What is the herb on this?" Right. Versus saying, "I think it's parsley, basil, and thyme." And I'm like, "I'm looking at it. There's not that stuff on there. You're, you're making it up on the spot because you want to f- tell me something." <laughs> yeah, trying to fake their way through it. Right. Yeah. I, I, I'm seeing a lot of faking their way through it, um, and that has to do, I think, with training and and like that goes back to the turnover issue. That yeah. 72.9% turnover that restaurants have, and so I think that diners will see it and like. The servers can't answer questions or their water glass isn't refilled as much because if, if the front of house is down a person, you've got fewer people from more tables. And so it, it kind of snowballs. Sure. And then the solution, one of the solutions is obviously better trained, better paid yeah. employees. But that costs money, yep. which you may see in your bill. Yeah. 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 So – and I, I heard a lot sort of during the reporting of the story that food prices need to go up. They are artificially low. It is – if your uh, – Layla Borkham, she's one of the people I talked to, and she said if your food is cheap, there's exploitation somewhere. That's – yeah. I've heard that on a lot of goods as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, if it's cheap, there's exploitation somewhere. And yeah. so – but I think that it is kind of like this game of chicken. Who was going to be first to raise the cost of these things up to where they need to be so they can pay the dishwasher enough to stay? Yeah. And – I think we are going to start seeing things cost more. I think also, like, I've noticed some interesting things. Like, I've noticed, like, for example, um, Underground Food Collective, like, they'll do little pop-ups at Underground Butcher for some of their staffers who are doing interesting things. Uh-huh. Like, oh, you know, you spent a few months in China and came back, and we're going to – you get to, like, make some pulled noodles that you learned how to do when you were over there, like, once a week in the butcher shop. Okay. Like, little things to, like, show your employees that they're valued. Yeah. And that they're important. Um, and I think that's – I was looking through tons of job ads as prep for the story. And like Estrion will pay for your bus pass. That's nice. Yeah. Little yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, it's that that was kind of interesting just to see all the kind of small ways that they were looking to like a people advertising like you only think of five day weeks and no nights and weekends or, you know, these other things in addition to sort of the, you know, $19 an hour that they pay at Epic, whatever, like what are the other benefits that you're going to get? Right. It's interesting because I think diners, people eating restaurants, you know, they seem happy to pay more for better ingredients, you know, and that that side of it, they don't seem to mind yeah. raising prices, but good service may not they may not see the connection quite as clearly between what they pay because they're like, well, anybody could just bring me, you know, I mean, they don't maybe don't understand what all goes into that, all goes into good service, until like you say, their water glass isn't filled and somebody's getting their herbs wrong or something like that. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's very true, and I think. We don't make that exact connection, right? We don't think – because especially like if, it, you know, maybe the ingredients coming out of the kitchen are really good, but my burger wasn't cooked the way that I wanted it to be right. or whatever. Um, and I think it's also people tip what they tip. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So my parents will always tip 15% because that is what they grew up tipping and that's what they think tips should be. I always tip 20% unless right. you like set me on fire um, or you give me an extra cocktail and then I'll – Tip like seventeen five, <laughs> no, like twenty five, whatever. You're right. Um, but like if you know, I, I have had the cocktails splashed on me accidentally, and I've had all kinds of funny things happen. And unless you did it on purpose, right? <laughs> I'm probably going to still tip you twenty percent. Well, there is sort of that weird. I don't know. If this is a uh, a myth, but like that that crankier servers actually get paid better than happier servers under the the, the thinking that. If a server acts very happy, they must love their jobs. They don't need the extra tips. Oh <laughs> so you could give them 15%. But somebody who's like in a bad mood and sort of sullen, like, oh, I'll give them 20 to brighten their day or something like that. I'd heard that somewhere. I don't know if that's true. There but. was a great This American Life uh, where they actually like looked into this. And they they did this like experiment at this one restaurant. Okay. And like what, they had servers like specifically do different things. Like one was like super friendly, like, hi, how are you? Bringing extra like – bread and little extra things like being super nice and super friendly and the other server was like just straight up like hi what can I get you okay thanks and then like just kind of flatline right. like very basic just just the basics and they got tipped the same amount yeah all day same same and it, because people tip what they tip yeah you know yeah. and so the the whole new rules now around like tip sharing the fact that like they, they can be collected now and shared with the back of the house think it's a big deal um apparently there's some stuff in the law that says that like restaurants can't like gather them and keep them which is good yeah um but there is like now allowed to be like sharing tips between the front and back of house and brian hamilton was really encouraged by that he was like look if you're paying your front of house your minimum wage 725 an hour and you're paying your kitchen manager 12 and then everyone gets kind of an equitable split of tips based on your calculations Every good, everybody's going to be happier. Your whole team will be more well-integrated and will be more likely to, to stay with you as a team. Yeah. Well, cool. Is there any aspect of the story I haven't brought up? This is the <laughs> typical last interview question yeah. we always ask, right? So yeah, yeah. What, what have I forgotten to ask you that's important to mention? I mean, I am really interested to see whether this is an indicator of a restaurant bubble that is already starting to burst. Yeah. Right? What closures? We'll see some restaurant closures this year. We see restaurant closures every year. It is a normal part of the evolution. I wonder what like 2019 is going to bring, and I wonder if it's going to be connected to staffing. And I also wonder if we're going to start to see more concepts that are either 
like Little Tibet, for example, where everybody involved with that is family or like close friends. Right. Where basically, basically like you're leaning on your family unit to be your staff, right? Right. Or if we're going to see more things where it's like this is we're, – we're like Sujo going to counter service or, you know, things that involve – Fewer staff, like concepts that are basically designed from the get-go to not require so many people. There's one group in town you mentioned who is considering the idea of having sort of like a bench of cooks and dishwashers or whatever to yeah. fill in if there's staffing shortages at any of the places, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, so Culinary Ladies Collective wants to have like this group of ringers. Yeah, where ringers. People can, yeah, people can like go and say, well, I need a, I need a dishwasher ringer. Or I need a, you know, front of house ringer or something. So somebody who, like, does this and knows well how to do this kind of job. I mean, I think it would be hard to sort of seamlessly integrate with every place that you go. Right, yeah. But it sounds like such a cool idea. I don't know what the execution might look like. But to me, it sounds like freelance restaurant, like freelancing restaurant service. Yeah. Right? Like you just on assignment, like, oh, I take this assignment or that assignment. Like you're an Uber driver, but for restaurants. I I don't know. I mean... It's interesting, but I think you wouldn't want to do too much of that because I bet it's really important to assemble a reliable team in your restaurant. You wouldn't just want people coming and going too much, but maybe just filling in those temporary gaps that always pop up. Yeah. And and with anything with like the gig economy and these kinds of jobs, you don't want to exploit people. Right. Right? Yeah. And so I think that's a I think that's a concern that the culinary ladies have. They're they're pretty thoughtful about those kinds yeah. of things. So I don't know how it would actually work, but I'm really interested. I it was it was interesting to talk to. I was ta- one of the, my sources was Wally Graber, who did the Taliesin program, the food artisan program, mm-hmm. which was kind of a, a problematic in its first year because they were figuring it out. Um, but he it, like just took a job at Homogenation. He's really excited about that, and he'd been working at Harvest. And he said that Tammy offered that he could paint. The restaurant, because he wasn't getting enough hours in the front of the house because it's slow. It's like February, March. It's really slow. And so she wasn't able to give him as, as many shifts as she would like. And so she's like, well, how about <laughs> how about you paint the restaurant? And I thought that's just that's such a creative way of saying I value you. Right. I want you to stay. Yeah. I know if I can't give you enough work in the front of the house that, like, maybe you'll find something else. And so just it, it that seemed like such a a creative way of thinking about, like, I value employees as people, and I understand that they are also juggling a lot of things in their own lives, and they're not just a line item in my budget. Right. Yeah. You know? So. Well, cool. Well, it was a great story. And, Thank and, you. And I know you dive deep into it. And, yeah. And I encourage everybody to read it. Um, so when this comes out, uh, it'll still be online, but maybe not on yeah. racks, right? So when this comes out, we will have a new cover story as of that day, yes. the day when this comes out. Um, but it will still definitely be online. And there's some other fun food things coming up, too. People should keep an eye out. Excellent. Well, yeah. thank you, Lindsay. Yes, thank you for coming in. Of course. This has been The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison produced by the Capital Times. Our music was composed by Patrick Christians. We get editing and tech support from CT podcast guy Eric Lawrenson. The Corner Table drops every other week, and you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Follow us at Corner Table Podcast on Facebook, and find more food and drink news every day at captimes.com. Check out our recent review of Tangent on East Washington Avenue, a look at African favorites at Kingdom on the north side, and a feature on a new Madison-based wine company. 
I am your host, food editor, Lindsay Christians. My wish for you this week is a good old Friday night fish fry. Cheers! Cheers!